of God's revealed word proclaimed through personalities and his people should never really get old. Through pages of scripture, we find God revealed, revealing himself. In these pages of scripture, we find the grand narrative of all of time and history told. In these pages of scripture, we find heroes and we find villains and we find the true hero, Jesus. And we find his great resurrection. There, seeing and hearing the story of God again and again, our faith should grow. Our worship should expand our lives should be changed. Today we encounter a passage of scripture that is well known. Today we encounter a passage of scripture from the book of Psalms. Today we encounter a passage of scripture that should do exactly this. To deepen our faith, to expand our worship, to change our lives. In our psalm appointed for today, Psalm 22, we find a hero afflicted and exalted. In our scriptures, it says that it is attributed to King David, that King David wrote the psalm. But folks, I'm telling you this morning, it's not about King David. It's used by Jesus as he hung suspended between heaven and earth upon the cross. And no Christian can read this psalm without being vividly confronted with the king affliction, writes Scholar Gary Kitchen. And my guess is that as we read Psalm 22 this morning, in many of our minds, we were automatically subjected to that moment on the cross where Jesus proclaimed, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, the first half of the psalm is a mirror of the suffering of Jesus upon the cross, and the second half is a mirror of the results that come out of his resurrection. Psalm 22 is about Jesus from beginning to end. It's about what he accomplished upon the cross, and as he emerged from the grave, it is about what he has done and what results from his work. This particular psalm reveals to us the depth of Jesus' suffering, the deliverance and exaltation that is his, and the universal results of his work. So it is that every aspect of this particular psalm of David is mirrored in the gospel account of Jesus' death. The gospel accounts of Jesus' death upon the cross record what they record because that is what happened. And what happened is in fulfillment of Scripture. In Acts chapter 2, verse 30, the Apostle Peter refers to King David as a prophet because of what David wrote in Psalm 16 regarding the resurrection of Jesus. And given that nothing in David's life amounts to this level of suffering and affliction written in Psalm 22, one, one commentator has quipped that Psalm 22 is not an illness. Psalm 22 is not suffering from a wound. Psalm 22 is an execution. And nothing like this was ever experienced by David. And given that nothing in David's life amounted to this level of suffering and affliction, given that David spoke prophetically about Jesus in Psalm 16 and again in Psalm 110, and given the course of the events on the day of Jesus' death, I think we can say that David has written better than he knew here in Psalm 22. 
one of the first things that strikes me as I look at the first 21 verses of this particular psalm, and perhaps it strikes you as well, is, is the vivid way in which David depicts the deep distress and suffering of the one who is afflicted. The first verse, in fact, sets the tone for the entirety of this section, verses 1 through 21, as the author cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The suffering of the afflicted one is understood in terms of being forsaken by God. This is not a loss of faith from the one who's afflicted. This is not a broken relationship that's resulted because of sin on the account of the afflicted. Rather, this is a disorientation of the afflicted as he experiences something that he has never before experienced. As one commentator has put it, he is now experiencing the feeling of divine wrath enshrouding him. It feels like forsaken. In Psalm 22, the suffering and affliction is brutal. Those causing the affliction are referred to as wild beasts, wolves, lions, and dogs. And the result of the affliction is, on the one hand, a crying out and a, a sleeplessness. But there's more than that because the affliction is physical. The body is broken, the hands and the feet are pierced, bones can be counted, the body is dried up. The one who's afflicted is treated as a dead man. His garments are the stake for a game of craps, a game of rolling dice. The individual is the object of scorn and loathing. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Who trusts in the Lord? Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him who delights in him. Those who pass by Jesus as he hung suspended between heaven and earth wagged their heads and derided him. The chief priests and elders mocked him and said, Who trusts God? Let God deliver him now, if he desires. And so it is, Jesus cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Certainly we recognize that in our limited understanding, we don't fully understand Jesus' experience upon the cross. But we do recognize that upon the cross, Jesus used this psalm to define his suffering. And so it is that somehow, without violating the Son's perfect union with the Father, while at the same time working out the will of the Father, Jesus experienced something he had never before experienced, a place of deep dislocation, a place of deep disorientation as the wrath of God is poured out upon him. As Jesus substituted himself into the place of sinners, as he bore the sins of the world and became sin on our behalf, he experienced some type of dislocation that he identified as forsakenness. There's a development within Christian theology that as Jesus cried out these words, that that was the moment in which he felt the weight of the sin of the world poured upon him. At that moment, Jesus endured the wrath of God One Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. 
for our sake, he crucified him upon Pilate. He must have done this. But this is the afflicted one. This is the one who cried out and ascended between heaven and earth. St. Paul writes in St. Corinthians chapter 5, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And just a few verses later, he writes, For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what it looks like. This afflicted one upon the cross in Psalm 22. If this is what it looks like, to achieve righteousness for many. If this is what it looks like to be the end result of sins being poured upon, how terrible our sins must be indeed. How do we measure the size of the fire? By the number of firefighters and fire engines sent to the fight against it. How do we measure the seriousness of a medical condition? by the amount of risk the doctors take in prescribing dangerous antibiotics to patients with fever? How do we measure the gravity of sin, the incomparable vastness of God's love for us in the gutless ashes of Calvary? By looking at the magnitude of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who became a common criminal for our sake, Here's the gospel. You're more sinful than you ever dared believe. You're more loved than you ever dared imagine. When Jesus cries out the first line of this psalm on the cross, I do not believe that he's limiting his experience upon the cross to that line only. When Jesus cries out the psalm 22, verse 1, the first half of verse 1, I believe he does so because of what he was truly experiencing, but I think that he does so as well because Jesus knows the rest of the psalm. And I think because he wants everybody in his hearing to think of the rest of the psalm, and I think it's because he wants us to think of the rest of the psalm. So even in the midst of his crucifixion, even in the midst of his affliction and his suffering, not is he just feeling forsaken by God, but even in that place of distress and dislocation, he's proclaiming that he will continue to trust in God for the rest. It's really mind-blowing to think about that. In the midst of this body-breaking affliction in Psalm 22, the afflicted one will trust in God. In fact, if you look at the first 21 verses, again, you'll see that there is an alternating uh, thematic theme. The first 21 verses alternate between David saying, I, me, and then turning to God and saying, yet you. And so it reads something like this, I am suffering, but you, God, are holy. My affliction is killing me, but you, God, will deliver. And so even in the midst of the deepest distress, the afflicted one trusts in God to rescue and restore. And as Jesus died, as he yelled out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He also says, Father, into your hands 
I commit my spirit. God is the Holy One who has delivered before, and Jesus entrusts himself, even in the midst of his temptation, to the Father who God, the Holy One, who is delivered before, is not some far-removed deity. He's no mere acquaintance. And the turning point of the psalm is verse 21, where deliverance is spoken of as a fact. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And now there's a shift in tone. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So that while Jesus hung upon the cross, suffering affliction, he is trusting in God saying that it had already happened that he will be delivered. That's how sure it was. Sudden and dramatic deliverance after affliction, resurrection and exaltation after crucifixion. Jesus proclaims his trust in God even as he suffers and bears the sin of the world. The turning points are poetically described in verse 21 of our psalm. Accomplished as the stone was rolled away and Jesus emerged victorious over sin and death and hell. As our creed states, on the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. The deliverance and the exaltation of Jesus, St. Peter puts this way, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Psalm 22 shows us the depths of Jesus' suffering. It shows us exaltation as he is delivered by God and raised. And it shows us that in Jesus, a people are made and God is worshipped. It is worth it this morning for us to hear again the last half of Psalm 22 in its entirety. What is the result of the affliction and the exaltation? What is the, uh, the result of death and resurrection? I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Yet you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. Kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth he worships. Before him shall bow all who go down into the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive, posterity shall serve him. They shall be told of the Lord in the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That he has done it. There's a sharing of deliverance that is proclaimed here. A sharing of experience that is substitutionary and representative in nature. The one afflicted and now delivered will proclaim that which God has done in the congregation and will lead the people of God to praise. The fruits of the deliverance of the afflicted one, his death and his resurrection, they spread to all of time and space, and it is for all the nations. It is for the rich and the poor. It is for those who are old and those who are not yet born. There is then a 
purpose, a reason that lies behind the suffering of the afflicted ones. And that reason is found in the reconciliation of sinful nations to the true king, the greater creator, triune God. As the author of Hebrews states, he brought many sons to glory. How? Through suffering and affliction and exaltation. Through the vicarious and substitutionary atonement made by Jesus upon the cross, where he defines it as being forsaken, as the wrath of God is poured upon him. suffered, Jesus was afflicted, God delivered him as he raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him. Psalm 22 says, he has done it. As he hung, suspended between heaven and earth, Jesus knows it is finished. It's done. You see, Jesus' death and his resurrection has nothing left to be done in forgiveness. Nothing left to be done in reconciliation with a holy God. Jesus has done it. That's the end of it. That's the end of trying to merit. That's the end of trying to earn. That's the end of trying to make a contract with God in which you render to him goods and services and he gives back to you eternal life. That's the end of it because Jesus has done it. The rest of scripture says all one must do is believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, and you will be saved. It is finished. He has done it. The vicarious and substitutionary atonement did what we could not, what we cannot, what we are unable to do. Our sin is terrible indeed, and yet God, in his great mercy and love, sent the Son, and the Son came. There's nothing left to be done because Jesus, the most afflicted of the rich, has done it. I began this sermon this morning by saying that the beauty and wonder of God's revealed word proclaims the personality of people who never get old. I began this morning by saying that here in these pages of scripture, we, we encounter the story of God and the hero, uh, Jesus, who rescues us from our sin. And today, I said that we should uh, have our faith deepened because of it. And we should have our worship expanded because of it. And that the truth in Scripture, the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf, should change our lives. It should. And I think it's fair to ask the question, why so often doesn't? Are you clinging to yourself and your self-preservation, your self-deliverance, your self-rescue? And so your faith is not deepened when you hear the words of substitutionary atonement and the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you are a sinner and yet Jesus loves you and died for you? Are you so clinging to yourself that you cannot deepen your faith? Are you clinging to that which you think that you've earned, that you can't give it up and let Jesus be Jesus and you be a sinner redeemed? Are you clinging to yourself so that the great shepherd is a far-removed individual who has great ideas, but you are not yet a lamb of his redeeming? I would say to you, give it up. Don't applaud. Don't applaud. We're applauding because we think it's for somebody else. It's for us. 
my faith deepened when I read the words of Psalm 23. Because I worship it today. Do we not see that which Jesus did? Do we not see that which the Father has done? Do we not see that which the Holy Spirit applied? Do we not see the greatest work of redemption, the greatest story ever told, and yet as one 21st century poet has said, the TV ain't telling it. And yet sometimes when we come into worship, we come in like we've been sucking sour lemons for breakfast. Sometimes we approach our worship as if it is a tax upon us, as it is an obligation. It is an obligation because Jesus saved you. And it should expand your worship to include joy and lament and brokenness and healing and salvation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus said that to the apostles. Does that not expand your worship? Do you not see something of the Does that not change us? It should. We should be different people because of who Jesus is. We should be different people because of the grace that is poured out through the cross and the resurrection. No longer living for ourselves, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, living for the one who is afflicted and suffered and now is exalted. So that we have testimony in the midst of congregation. We can proclaim the praise of God in the midst of people. And we can go about in this world encountering individuals who do not yet know Jesus, yet for whom Jesus has died, that they too might believe. Thank you.